Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, June 18th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, hear from Mississippi leaders in Washington on migrant children separated from their families. And the latest on a collaborative effort to combat Mississippi's opioid crisis. Um, a lot of times we're, we're doing things that other people don't realize that is going on and how you can partner together and work together on that. On Everyday Tech, it's time to recycle your old gadgets. Then a live update on the Mississippi State Bulldogs in the College World Series. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Some 2,000 migrant children and parents have been separated, according to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. This after the families crossed the border. The penalty is part of a zero-tolerance policy implemented by President Donald Trump's administration in May to charge parents entering the country illegally with federal crimes. The children of those families are being kept in shelters with no clear procedure for reuniting. Mississippi's congressional delegates are expressing differing views on the matter. At a campaign rally in Bolton, Republican U.S. Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith tells MPB's Ashley Norwood she sympathizes, but migrants must abide by the U.S. law. When my child goes to another country, we have to abide by their laws. That's got to be the same way here. It's a procedure to do that, and there's no way that we can not have that procedure. Does my heart go out? You bet it does. That's the reason I want to set up a system that is better than what we have, but it's still a system that says if you're not a citizen here, there's rules you have to live by. If elected, what would be your steps taken toward that process? Well, like I said, to come up with a common sense approach that, uh, yeah, we've got rules that everybody has to live by, just like when my child goes into another country, we have to live by. But we want them to be as humane as possible. But still in all, the law is the law, and that's what we're going to live by. Mississippi Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson speaks with our Ashley Norwood. A number of us see that as very disruptive, almost inhumane for children to be separated from their parents. Uh, We are being told that a closed Walmart has been converted uh, to a shelter and that uh, another plan is to start putting children in tents. Well, we're a better country than that, but I think some of us uh, want to get firsthand view of what's taking place, talk to the officials. So when we come back on Tuesday here to Washington, we can speak with a little more information. Can you tell me a little bit about the immigration bill right now, um, whether or not it's actually going to resolve the issue or if it's going to make things make matters worse? Well, unfortunately, the bill we will consider is a bill drafted by Republicans with no Democratic input. Uh, and basically, it ties building the border wall uh, to any immigration, and it's put such a long path that it could take 20 years for an individual to get citizenship. Again, uh, it's very punitive uh, on a lot of people who are coming to this country. Most of the individuals that we come in contact are fleeing some kind of oppression, but most of them see the United States as a place of opportunity. Uh, We need to make sure that 
those individuals are treated humanely, that if that oppression is of such that their lives are in danger, uh, we have provisions in law for people to come to this country, and we should continue to welcome uh, those type individuals to the country. But the bill we will be considering uh, is not a good bill, and unless we can get some conversation between Republicans and Democrats, unfortunately, the bill will probably pass, but it will not solve the problem. Some people say that those who are caught up in this situation have gotten what they deserve because they broke a law. What's your response to that? You know, the question is, even people who you might suspect who have broken the law are still human beings. And even in America, you still have rights. But for children in this situation who came uh, with their parents, uh, they're not adults. And for us to now separate them so that the parents don't know where they are, there's no communication, parents are inquiring, what did you do with my son or my daughter? And they are told that's none of your business. We are a better country than that. In spite of what the Trump administration is trying to portray, we are a nation of immigrants, to say the least. And now all of a sudden, we've decided that we're going to close our borders to anyone who might want to come here fleeing oppression. Congressman Thompson, thank you again so much for your time. Thank you. Thompson says Democrats are willing to work with Republicans on better solutions for illegal immigration. Coming up, the latest on a collaborative effort to combat Mississippi's opioid crisis. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. You might not have heard of the name, Ed Scott Jr., but on the next Deep South Dining, we will talk all about this trailblazing farmer and how he became the first person of color to own a catfish plant in the nation. Author Julian Rankin will give us a look into Ed Scott's life with his new book, Catfish Dream. Also, you never know what Deborah and Kevin will bring from the kitchen. So tune into the next Deep South Dining today at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio or on your mobile device using the MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi mental health and medical professionals are working to come up with a comprehensive statewide plan to combat opioid abuse. About 50 people met in Jackson to talk about the challenges they face in fighting the epidemic and overdose prevention. Dr. Randy Easterling practices addiction medicine in Vicksburg. He tells MPB's Desiree Fraser multiple agencies are at the table. We had several physicians here. We had mental health. We had Medicaid. They had the health department. Trying to get these agencies and groups. I'm on the Mississippi State Board of Medical Licensure. I was on the governor's task force for opioid addiction. And so to get these folks together and share ideas and also share what each agency and each group's doing and try to come up with some kind of concerted effort. Do you feel like you have a plan and what is the plan? Well, the facilitators are going to formulate all the information they heard today and as the weeks go by, and it'll be fairly fairly soon, we will come up and formulate a plan. What stands out in your mind right now that really needs to be at the top of the list in terms of addressing? Well, from my standpoint, uh, treatment, uh, availability of treatment, uh, trying to teach providers to be more judicious in prescribing opioids, 
uh, and that's an education process and also informing the public just how dangerous these drugs are. What are you finding out in your practice uh, about opioid use? Well, I think statewide it's gone down. In the last five years, Mississippi's prescriptions have gone down 10%. Yet in 2017, the most prescribed medication in the state of Mississippi was hydrocodone. And in 2017, we wrote more than 3.3 million prescriptions of opioids. And every day in Mississippi, pharmacies dispense half a million dosage units of opioids. So we've come a long way, but we've got a long way to go. How do you get to the pharmacists, or do they have a role in this? Oh, sure. I think they're crucial. They're getting on board. You know, they fill the prescriptions. And more and more we're having pharmacists call and say, you know, Doc, this person's getting it from somewhere else. And we're going to start requiring physicians to run PMPs, and they will get that information too. So it's a collaborative effort. Uh, I don't think pharmacy was here today, but they've been very involved, I can assure you. And so even getting treatment, it sounds like, Relapsing is going to be a continuing concern? Well, the definition addiction is a chronic relapsing disease. It's a brain disorder, and it's chronic and it's relapsing. So almost every person that ends up being addicted to something, whether it be opioids, benzodiazepines, alcohol, almost all of them relapse somewhere along. So where does the incentive to pursue trying to help people come from? Well, it's a disease. If you're a diabetic and you come into me in my office and your blood sugar is 400, I don't say, sorry, I can't help you. You, you ate a piece of cake last night just going about your business. You know, that's the, the, you, you know, hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, high cholesterol, all of those are chronic illnesses. Addictions are chronic, chronic illness. Dr. Randy Easterling. Wendy Bailey is with the State Department of Mental Health's Bureau of Outreach, Planning, and Development. She tells our Desiree Frazier increasingly more work is being done toward the efforts. One of the main things we've been doing is increasing access to treatment, but also um, providing naloxone to law enforcement officers. We've distributed over 9,400 units of naloxone and trained more than um, 5,000 law enforcement officers across the state. And by doing this and providing this life-saving drug, we know that at least 47 lives have been saved, and we know that number's probably higher than that. Um, So that training aspect, that early Early intervention, that prevention, is one of the main things that we are focusing on. Do you have any idea of what the addiction rate is in the state? Is there any way to measure that? Um, well, we do know that with overdose deaths with opioids, there were over 256 in 2017. But we also know that the um, prescriptions for opioids did decrease in 2017. So we are seeing the efforts and the improvement there. Um, we've had about 19 town hall meetings across the state where we're trying to bring communities together to understand how to address this and understand what type of problem and crisis this is for our state. And I think that's what this event today has done as well. It brought 40 to 50 people from different organizations, different state agencies, physicians, all to the table to work together to look at what are the challenges, what are the barriers for Mississippi, but what are the strengths and what are the opportunities that we have, and then figure out what those gaps are and how we can develop a plan to address those gaps. What is uh, 
a, a barrier, a, a significant barrier? One barrier is um, stigma and just public awareness and education and understanding of the opioid crisis. Um, but that, then at the same time, one of the opportunities that our state has is we do all work together. And I think everyone has learned no one agency, no one organization, no one person is going to be able to address this crisis. It is going to take everyone working together and focusing in on what they do and and how we can partner together to truly save lives. I know that um, pharmacies are supposed to now keep naloxone on hand. Yes. Um, our state health officer, Dr. Courier, she issued a standing order that pharmacies can provide naloxone. Let's say, for example, that you have a family member who you know um, has an addiction problem. You can go in to your local pharmacy and you can get naloxone and you can have that with you in case they do overdose, that you have that drug. But the one thing about that drug is it does save your life, but it's not in place of treatment. So if you use naloxone, you still do need to call emergency personnel, and then that individual does still need to get help and to get treatment. What stands out about this meeting and and, and what was discussed? I think it was interesting to look and see what is going on across the state. Um, a lot of times we're, we're doing things that other people don't realize that is going on and how you can partner together and work together on that. But then also seeing some of those areas that we know okay, that's a gap. That's somewhere we need to focus attention and that's somewhere that that we need to put some extra effort. And then also I think it's going to be interesting to see what other states are doing and, and how we can model things after some other states as well. Department of Mental Health's Wendy Bailey with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Coming up, a live update on the Mississippi State Bulldogs in the College World Series. That's after Everyday Tech. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Whether you're a thrifty shopper or someone who likes to buy the whole store, Change is the program that will allow your purchases to show your support for the quality content on MPB Radio. This easy and no-hassle program rounds up your credit or debit card purchases to the nearest dollar and sends us the difference. You support MPB and get something nice for yourself. To sign up for Change, visit our website, mpbonline.org, and click Support. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. I'm Michelle McAdoo with the Wilts Couture, and today we're discussing recycling technology. So, Wilts, recycling has been around for a long time, but most people don't understand the process, especially when it relates to technology. Well, the biggest thing we're trying to do when we're recycling technology is taking all of those components and the different chemicals and the different materials that are actually used to make these devices and reclaiming them so they can become other devices. One of the main things you're going to see in a lot of devices now, you see a lot of plastic, for example. And, you know, one thing that comes to mind with me is the phones that we actually have on our desks at our office. They are made of 100% recycled plastic. So they're actually reclaiming that plastic to turn it back around and make a new product. When you start thinking about technology, too, you're going inside and you're realizing there are circuit boards and other things that are going to have things such as copper and gold and, and other materials such as that that we really do need to extract out of them. So there's a big part of what we're trying to pull out of those devices. Now, when we want to start talking about the hazardous aspect, those of us with monitors, BM, the, the newer flat panel LCDs, or even the older what we call CRTs or cathode ray tubes, the, the, big, the big TV, you know, the old school TV looking things, 
those actually have a lot of hazardous chemicals inside of them. So in the recycling process, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to take those devices and reduce them down to where they're usable substances that we can properly either dispose of or turn into other products. It becomes especially sensitive when it comes to recycling technology because a lot of times those same devices actually hold data. Think about your old computer. If you're getting rid of an old computer, you may have done your taxes on that thing for the last few years. Well, your very sensitive information is still stored on there, so you want to make sure that it doesn't fall into the wrong hands. So we have a couple of extra challenges that come into play when we start talking about recycling technology. So what types of technology are used to make recycling more effective? Most of the technology used would revolve around actually sorting the materials that you're looking at recycling. Think about this. Think about if you were recycling a car. What are the different items that go into making that car? You have copper in the wiring. You have aluminum or steel. You have glass. You have plastic. You have the materials that are used to make your seats nice and comfortable. All of those materials become recyclable at one point, but you have to use technology to actually separate that out and make sure that the glass makes it to people who can reuse the glass and the copper gets to those who can actually reuse the copper. So sorting becomes vital to a successful recycling program. So what's the best way to ensure that your items don't end up in a landfill? I advise a lot of folks, especially in our area, to talk to the local computer shops and even some of your big box stores around a lot of them will take in old phones, old computers, just old technology devices, and they will ensure it gets to the right location. Another really good program that we take advantage of a lot, both personally as well as at work, is with our local Department of Environmental Quality. I know for us, they run twice a year an e-waste recycle program where anyone in the community can actually bring these e-waste items, be them old computers, old printers, old telephones, what have you, to them, and they will ensure that they get to the proper location to be properly recycled, properly disposed of. And that even includes that hazardous material potentially in your, your monitors and such. The thing you want to do prior to utilizing any of those programs or taking your technology anywhere else for someone to dispose of is to make sure that your data is destroyed. A lot of times I advise folks to not bring the hard drive along with them whenever they're recycling their computer. The best way to make sure that your data is destroyed on those items is to make sure that it is just physically destroyed. You know, as funny as it may sound, I've actually advised quite a few people and have done this myself to take a hammer to your hard drive and just make sure that it's physically smashed to make sure someone's not recovering that data. Why is recycling so important to our environment and our state? Well, it's going to be always an important aspect of what we do because recycling is really becoming that much more important to make sure that we're not just filling up the landfill full of old TVs and old computers, but actually that we're utilizing it properly, that we're reusing it, and we're getting the most life back out of it, and we're leaving this world a much better place for our kids. We will talk more about recycling technology on Everyday Tech, the show that comes on Wednesdays at 10 a.m. You can send us an email to everydaytech at mpbonline.org. For Wilts Contraire, I'm Michelle McAdoo. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Mississippi State University Bulldogs baseball team is dominating in the 2018 College World Series. 
They opened with a win over the University of Washington Huskies in the program's 10th appearance in the World Series. And here to update us on the latest is MPB's Jay White. So, Jay, it was a low-scoring game. Hey, well, you, just, you told the whole story. I can turn around and leave now. You just let everyone know what's going on. Inning. No, no. I mean, is that is that exciting for fans, or is it like, oh, my gosh, will someone please get a hit? Well, or, or the, the way this postseason has worked out for Mississippi State, there have been a lot of close, tense, long baseball games, and so I think they are conditioned for it, uh, but it is not necessarily how they would like it to go. I think they would like a snoozer uh, in there occasionally, but it has not worked out that way so far. Now, the Huskies were picked to lose this game? yes. Uh, the Huskies uh, were far and away the most unexpected team um, out of the NCAA tournament to make it to the College World Series round. Should there be any concern that it took until the ninth inning for the Dogs to beat them? No, Washington, and this this kind of happens um, with a bunch of teams in the NCAA tournament. Um, your team cannot be you know all the way around complete, but. Any team can have one ace pitcher, and that's what Washington had. They threw a guy yesterday, or excuse me, uh, Saturday, that had pitched a perfect game earlier in the season and uh, in the Super Regionals, which is the qualifying round for the World Series. Um, he had a perfect game against their opponent going into the seventh inning. He's really, really good. And so he kept Mississippi State, who has been hitting the ball extremely well, in check. Did Mississippi State have uh, a star player on Saturday, and do they have some players we should be watching? Certainly uh, they do. Um, the, Ethan Small was the starting pitcher for this first game, and his performance in uh, the opening round game was extremely important. State is not the deepest team as far as pitching goes, and when you're playing in a tournament, um, the the farther you could stretch your pitching, the better and for him to pitch as well as he did in the opening game, um, you know, going in, uh, what, through seven, really, really helped Mississippi State not have to use all of their relief pitchers. Uh, so they're they're in really good shape pitching-wise going into the rest of the tournament. Can you lay out how this whole tournament works? Yes, uh, I'm glad you asked. It is the anti-college football where <laughs> they kind of discriminately pick four teams to go into a championship. Uh, and if you don't, um, if your team doesn't necessarily look like theirs, or if you're not in the club that they're in, you're not invited. Um, the college baseball national champion is the most vetted of all Division One sports. You play a four-team double elimination tournament to get to the second round, which is the super regionals, where you win a you have to win a best of three series to get to this round, the College World Series which is two separate four-team double elimination tournaments, and the winners advance to the National Championship Series, which is a best two of three. You get, you get through all of that, you're seriously for real the national champion. Four teams in this round, you said? There are, so or eight Mississippi teams. St- there are eight teams left, but they're split into two four-team tournaments, and that's where Mississippi State is now. All right, what's ahead in the mm-hmm. next, well, when's the next game? The next game is coming up tonight at 7 o'clock, and Mississippi State plays North Carolina who uh, was the the number six team in the country coming into this tournament. They beat Oregon State, who was number three in the country in the first round. So they're very, very good. But Mississippi State has played extremely well for the last month and a half or so. They've been extremely hot in the last six weeks. Uh, One one final question. In the past series that Mississippi State has been in, how far did they get? Um, As recently as their last College World Series appearance, Uh, They made it to the championship round. That's as far as they've ever been. Once before, on a pretty star-studded team in 1985, 
uh, they reached what was essentially the the bracket was really weird then and different than it is now. And they were basically tied for third. So they've gone uh, far deep into the tournament a, a handful of times. Catch the MSU Bulldogs baseball team next next game against North Carolina tonight at 6 p.m. And Jay White is, the again, the host of Season Pass. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for asking. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Deep South Dining. Then at 10, now you're talking. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio.